Mindfulness is about being aware and observant of my mind and the mind's tendencies and having a little bit of authority over the mind's natural inclinations to do things that I might not necessarily want it to do. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Hey everybody, before we start the episode, I have an important announcement to make. We are going to start a new feature on the show, an AMA at the end, where you'll get a chance to interact with me and I get to answer any question you have. AMA stands for Ask Me Anything. And so if you have any questions around your workplace, things that you want around productivity, managing your team, scaling the organization, or about me or Mindvalley, go ahead and email me the question on jason at mindvalley.com. I look forward to hearing all of your questions and we'll get a chance to interact at the end of future podcast episodes. Now let's get started. Hi, everybody. This is your host, Jason Campbell, and welcome back to Superhumans at Work. Now, the guest that I have for you today is a real dear friend of mine. And going back a bit, I'd say in 2013 was when I attended my first A-Fest, which is Valley's flagship event, and it was happening in Bali. And at this point, I had no idea what Valley was. I just know of this man called Vishen Lakhiani, did a lot of entrepreneurial videos that I was watching on a certain blog. And I actually got hired by Valley at this point without a clear understanding of exactly what products we were selling, but it looked awesome and I wanted in. And so here I was at this event where I realized that we're promoting and talking about a lot of ideas around meditation, mindfulness, spirituality, looking at reality, bending reality. And I'm like, wow, this world I had never heard of before. And here I am with Tom on the morning of that second day where he's leading people through a stillness meditation. This, ladies and gentlemen, was the first time I ever meditated in my life. And so Tom was there at the beginning, and he is the leader and founder of a project called The Stillness Project, where he has a goal to inspire a billion people to meditate daily. And he's also written and produced a film called The Portal that includes a book, an app, and we're going to talk more about that. And here's what we want to cover today. A lot of people in the workplace, we might feel a little bit of stress, maybe a little bit of anxiety. Maybe you're feeling disengaged and disaligned in general with life. What's going on? What's this uncomfort that keeps being there? And is there a solution to it? This is what we're going to be talking about with Tom today. And Tom has such a fascinating history that I want him to take us through his journey of where he became the man that he is today. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, man, it's great to be here. Takes me back all those years when we did that meditation together. (laughs) I'm so grateful to you because that was really the start of my journey. And I started to use these tools to understand how stillness does bring a lot of clarity, does bring a lot of answers. Now, one thing I find most fascinating about your story is that, you know, you think of somebody who might be doing projects like the portal that's really bringing healing to the planet. We talk about the fact that your stillness project is about bringing meditation to the world. Yet, you actually might have been referred in the past as the Wolf of Wall Street of Australia. And I want you to take us back. How did you become this man that was in Wall Street, not Wall Street, but obviously in Australia, dealing with stocks, with bonds, with banks, and now you've become the man you are today? Yes, fascinating going back into our journeys and seeing how that sort of became part of our adventure and our process of being who we are today. I got kind of swept along. It was late 80s. I actually started my career the same year as Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street. He was 22, I was 19. 
he started in 1987, which is the year I started my career as a broker. And, you know, I walked onto a massive trading room floor. I literally was filling in some time before I did a degree in journalism. And I had quite a few months to fill in before my uni started. And I just applied to a bunch of jobs in the paper. And one of them was on this trading room floor. And I, you know, I got the job and I had no understanding about finance, certainly no interest in it. I actually wanted to be a journalist and write articles for Time magazine about capitalistic greed and try and save the planet. And next thing I'm on a trading room floor and I was surprisingly really good at the job. And just the adrenaline and the fast-paced hecticness of that trading room floor, you know, 150 guys yelling and screaming, split-second decisions, turning over billions of dollars every day in, in, in finance markets that swaps, bonds, currencies, cash, electricity, futures, you name it. It was hectic, it was fast, it was furious, and it was late 80s, early 90s, so there was no HR, that's human resources, to keep things in check, and we literally had open expense accounts to do whatever we wanted to entertain these clients. And I don't want to go too far into some of the stuff that we're doing, but let's just say it wouldn't be happening in today's world, that's for sure. And so, you know, you're all day trading, like on a massive trading floor, and at nighttime, you're out till nightclubs, strip clubs, wine bars, restaurants, till three, four in the morning, you know, and it was exciting. It was fast. It was lavish. But over time, there's only so much of that that your nervous system could handle. And admittedly, not everyone had the same symptoms and ramifications that I was starting to get. But what I happened to do, which was slightly different than most of the other brokers, was that I got really deeply involved in the rave culture in the late 80s and early 90s in, in Sydney. And it was just starting to explode on the scene, which was these underground warehouse parties on weekends. And of course, you know, there was a lot of drugs and dancing and partying. And most people in the industry would be sort of playing golf and then sleeping on their sofa most of the weekend and recovering from the intense week at work. Whereas I was in warehouse parties till seven in the morning and then recovery parties all day Sunday. And my system never had the opportunity to recover. And it just accumulated and accumulated and accumulated this stress till eventually over many years of this compounding effect of wear and tear, I literally went through a complete collapse in the system. That is a nervous breakdown at the age of 29, where my system was so overwhelmed with what I was putting it through. It, it simply said, enough is enough. We are done. And at that point, the anxiety, the panic, the depression, the insomnia, the agoraphobia, the constant sickness, I really deeply questioned whether I wanted to go on with life. I really didn't see a way out of the quagmire that I was in. And there was literally no light at the end of the tunnel. And I was really struggling with trying to fathom continuing on with my journey of life. Now, I was in this time, what had happened was I sent to psychiatrists, put on pharmaceutical drugs, put on suicide watch, had to report into the hospital. I developed agoraphobia and I was watching TV at home and there was a documentary about a property developer, a very famous property developer here in Australia. They were just doing a little profile story on him. And a tiny slither of that story was that he used meditation to be successful. Now, I'd never come across meditation. I was 29 years old. It was 1996. And it was like this light went on in my head. It was like this tingling of excitement where I saw something that really intrigued and inspired me. And I thought, 
that's what I need. And that's when I really literally picked up the yellow pages. And those people who are young wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about. It's this book that we used to use to try and find the numbers of different centers in Sydney. And I rang up all the different meditation centers and I started to research and explore mindfulness, Eastern philosophy and meditation. And that was literally the tipping point, the turning point in my journey. Wow. That's such an incredible journey. And there's almost a piece of me that's thinking like, you were actually lucky that you weren't so extreme because you automatically got the warning signal that things were deeply wrong. And then you were able to add the right measures that actually got you to correct your course. And I think what we're seeing in society now is there's a lot of people that have this slow burn that's happening. And we seem to direct our attention towards maybe addictive personalities, maybe distractions, maybe a sense of numbing to this disalignment between the activities we do day in and day out and the fact that it actually wears our body down. What's going on here and why do we find ourselves stepping into these disaligned positions? And is this to be expected? Is this normal? It is epidemic now, what we're seeing in the ramifications of the lifestyle that we're living on a number of different levels, which is the immediate access to pleasure through drugs, drinking, sugar, coffee, whatever, and also nonstop work, which is emails, working 12, 14, 16 hour days, really, you know, from people waking up in the morning at six, seven in the morning and checking their phone. And that can not necessarily just be work. It can also be Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. If you did an audit of how many people you will communicate with in one day, on multiple devices, and that can be in person, it can be on a phone, it can be a text, it can be WhatsApp, Voxer, Kick, Instagram, Facebook Messenger, you name it, and then go back to say something like 1979 and do an audit of how many people they would communicate with on their daily basis. It might be like five people versus 300 people. You know, by the time I've woken up and by the time I've had breakfast at nine o'clock, I mean, I could have spoken to 20 different people just by responding to a few messages and get back to someone on this type of scenario. And it's like, you know, in the past, we wouldn't have even spoken to someone other than our flatmate or our family member by, at that point, you know. By the time we get to work, we wouldn't have even had Walkmans. You might have read a book or read the paper or listened to the radio, but you wouldn't have communicated with anyone. Very rarely would you make a phone call before you left the house in the morning. What we're seeing is this creep, a creep of overwhelm where we kind of the analogy I like to use, and it might help listeners, it's not a nice analogy, particularly if you're vegan. So the French, from what I believe, the way they would cook a frog, because, you know, in French they eat frogs, you don't just kill a frog, you don't chop it its head off or anything like that. What they do is they put it in cold water, alive, and they would heat the water really, really slowly. What would happen is if you put a green frog on a brown table, eventually that frog changes its colouring. It adapts to its environment very easily. They're very adaptive. And so the frog adapts to its environment and it's slowly adjusting to the warming water. And slowly they're heating up the temperature, heating up the temperature, heating up the temperature. And eventually the frog doesn't even realize that it's dying. And then eventually it just dies quite peacefully. It's actually quite a humane way for them to, and that way they get the best nutrition and value out of the frog because it's died peacefully. That's what's happening to us. <laughs> So we're seeing this, Tom, where it's like all of these inputs are happening around us. It's happening at lightning speed. And you basically went into starting the stillness project. Is this the solution? Is this really what we need to do? Like, how do we slow down? And how does that affect us when it comes to the anxiety, the depression? We are going to have to start compartmentalizing our days more just because 
what we've lost is windows of time where we do very little. So in the old days, when I say old days, we're talking 20 years ago, pre-apps and pre-internet, what we would do would be on a train, we'd read a book or read the paper or maybe even, God forsaken, maybe talk to someone. When we're on the toilet, when we're at the traffic lights, when we're in our lunch break, you know, we had windows of time where we did very little and we've lost that these days. And so we need to consciously create gaps in our day and this is where mindfulness and meditation comes in it's a structured form a structured window of time that enables our mind and body and nervous system to have reprieve and we need to have reprieve otherwise this system it can only handle so much stimulation and if you look at any tribal culture if you look at any animal other than a human they take a lot of gaps of time doing very little and we almost see that as a waste of time. And so we're trying to cram as much in as possible and we're really paying a big price for that. And we've got to really assess what's of value and is what we're doing leading us to a better outcome as far as our health and happiness. And studies have proven that it's definitely not. You know, Tom, there's something I need to bring up, which you've mentioned yourself, which is, wow, okay, you're telling me to meditate. I've heard that before. And in your case, great, like you made a lot of money, you were doing these trades and everything, but I'm not looking to become a meditation instructor or to be teaching a stillness project. But what I found fascinating is once you started applying meditation, you didn't immediately went into these projects. You continued being on the trading floor, but you've started to use your mindfulness and you actually had more productivity. And I'd love for you to shine light on that because some people are thinking if I start adding these ideas of meditation, like I need to completely change job. I already have so many deliverables to bring home. I can't inject this into my life. Yeah. Look, I mean, I continued on as a meditating broker after my nervous breakdown. I had a breakdown at 29 and I went from being highly stressed, highly anxious, highly depressed broker to a much calmer, using meditation twice a day for 16 more years in the same company, the same clients, the same chair, the same computer, the same phone every day for 16 more years. And I became one of the leading brokers in that industry. And look, you know, there were some other great brokers that weren't meditators. So don't get me wrong. It's not like you have to meditate to be a successful person in business. There's a lot of very successful people who don't meditate. But for me, what it enabled me to do was have a sustainability and when we have a stress response, that is when we're in sympathetic nervous system state in our body, it affects us physiologically, it affects us mentally, and affects us emotionally, biochemically. And for us to be optimal in our workplace environment and optimal in our home environment, we need to have activated the parasympathetic nervous system. That is to have better brain functionality where our frontal lobe of the brain is much more activated and creative and intuitive. We need to have a biochemistry that isn't chock full of cortisol and adrenaline, but has the ability to switch off at night and go to sleep with melatonin, to feel happy, to have successful relationships, which can't actually happen when we're in the sympathetic nervous system state. And just physiologically, you know, to have a body that is functional at a high level. And there's a reason why some of the top companies in the world are bringing meditation pods, sleep pods, meditation programs, because they know that their staff are literally just a group of people that get out of bed every day that have to make their way through traffic to the front door of that office and they have to get the most out of their brain get the most out of their functionality and if they're stressed that's just not going to happen it's going to be pushing shit uphill so 
Yeah, it's just about sustainability and having tools and techniques that are going to help you live the optimal experience in home and work life. And that's what I love the most about your story is like you continued into the field, you've added these practices and it made you even more successful. And of course, not everybody needs to, to do that to be successful. But I would feel that the decisions you make when you're not in that intensity state seem to probably be a lot more long term minded probably a lot more constructive. I mean, if you're in the workplace and you find yourself always panicking about, oh my God, what is my boss thinking? Or what are my employees thinking? And like, you're almost reactive to absolutely everything around you. It seems like you'd be probably, you know, sabotaging yourself even in your career progression. Have you seen some of this with the people you've worked with? And have you seen a change once you start applying these practices? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a, a bit of a mantra out there that, you know, you need to be stressed to be highly functional. It's, it's actually not the case. It really impairs your creative ability. It impairs your ability to be really present and efficient in this moment. What causes overwhelm, which is a function of us giving our mind a lot of autonomy, we have this innate capability of being very present and being very efficient in this present moment. But when we have given a lot of autonomy, and a lot of power to the mind, the mind tends to take on a lot of information, way more information than's needed in each moment. So it will be doing a current task, but then thinking about other tasks that it needs to also do, which that starts to lead to overwhelm. Overwhelm and stress and anxiety is only when we're not currently in the present moment and doing what we're meant to be doing very efficiently, but we're trying to do or think about doing lots of other things at the same time. And this really is just a function of the mind having a lot of free reign. It doesn't care whether you're worried. It doesn't care whether you're anxious. In fact, the mind thrives in that environment because it's getting a lot of bang for its buck. It's getting a lot of tangibility. It's getting a lot of effect. And so it revels. And we've just given the mind a lot of play. So it's a matter of having practices and disciplines that reclaim your life back from the hijacking of the mind and allow you to be a lot more present. If I let myself go out of control, let's say, I mean, I'll be glued to machines, I'll be looking at every notification, reacting to everything and spending a whole day feeling like I spent a lot of energy, but looking at the projects I did move forward and none of them were big ones that actually moved the needle. So I actually find myself just chasing quick little stimuluses and quick little wins when if I would have done that one thing that would have made all the rest irrelevant would have been a highly more effective way to use my time. And so I'd love to jump into these practices and these things that we can do now that we understand that, okay, bringing these kinds of mindfulness and meditation practices will make me a more effective person. And so tell us more about how do you get started? What am I supposed to do? And will it take away my whole time? Am I going to be in a cave for the rest of my life? What's going to happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different ways you can go about embracing some window of time each day into, let's just call it meditation. You know, for me, mindfulness, and just to start on that, for me personally, the difference between mindfulness and meditation is mindfulness is what I do outside of meditation, what I do when I'm eating food, when I'm working, when I'm driving, when I'm playing with my family, when I'm walking. So mindfulness is about being aware and observant of my mind and the mind's tendencies and having a little bit of authority over the mind's natural inclinations to do things that I might not necessarily want it to do. Meditation is what I do when I sit in a chair I close my eyes, I withdraw from the world of senses, which is duality. My senses are always interpreting and analyzing the world outside of me. So that subject-object phenomenon. So withdrawing from the world of sense, withdrawing from the world of mental stimulation. And you can use a number of different practices for that. For me personally, 
what I've been using for 25 years and what I teach is a mantra-styled meditation called transcending meditations. And that's your Vedic, your transcendental meditation, primordial sound technique, and ultimately learning with a qualified teacher. And that's, you know, what I teach over weekend courses. We have created an online program to make that accessible for people around the world. But I find those deeper transcending meditations where you've got a mantra to make the process of going into inner stillness and silence a little bit more accessible and attainable. You can use more forceful meditations, which is more so like Vipassana Zen style meditations where you're really trying to empty the mind or clear the mind or still the mind using some level of concentration and some level of discipline and force. The only challenge with that, it's a great discipline and a great practice, but it can be a little bit uncomfortable. Using friction and force and concentration does require some labor and We've become not very good at doing things that we don't enjoy doing. And so if it's an unenjoyable practice, not many people will subscribe to it because there's so many other enjoyable things that we can do with our time. I find the transcending style meditations a much more blissful experience. So, I mean, we've got our 21-day online meditation program. We've also got an app which we've just put out which people can learn some of these techniques on. And that's about really just trying to bring these techniques out to it. But, you know, people can get free ones on YouTube and meditation is so available now and it's just a matter of shopping around and finding a a technique that resonates with you that you want to sustain and possibly a teacher that you resonate with that's going to be someone that can support you with your journey because it's important you get a fair bit of supporting information with your practice otherwise you might sort of possibly not understand it or not understand what you might be experiencing as a result of it and getting some support can help a lot I think. Yeah, I think having at least a community that makes you realize that, hey, it's okay if you have thoughts. And there's a lot of misconceptions that come when it's meditation. And so do you have maybe a quick few rules of thumb that people should be looking out for when they're starting meditation and they're like, wow, I feel like I can't meditate? Yeah. So firstly, it's not the mind's inclination to be still. The mind does not want to be still. It doesn't want to not think and it doesn't want to not analyze, project into the future and the past. So just understanding that this is a tendency of the mind. And it's up to you, consciousness itself, the awareness of you, to observe that. And whenever you're using your practice of meditation, whatever it is, recognizing that the mind has this tendency and it's going to try to, as it always has done since the day you're born, own the roost, be the boss. And so it's going to use some level of force in some way to try to override what you're asking it to do. So just acknowledge that and be really compassionate with yourself and really kind with yourself that it's not going to be like every meditation is going to be this Zen Buddhist monk type experience. You know, if you think about these guys left home at seven, they shaved their heads, they were in meditating monasteries for eight hours a day. They didn't have Instagram or WhatsApp and families and mortgages and work. So for them, mastering the mind by the age of 20 or 30 is totally reasonable and acceptable. But if we're starting at 20, 30, 40, and we've been living this quite, you know, hectic life, just be a little bit gentle on yourself that, you know, you're not reaching Zen states in the first sort of one to three months. It does take time. And it's just a matter of just taking it as it comes and embracing the process as you go. I really appreciate your tips there, Tom. I wanted to maybe finish off with saying, I know you're working on the portal. I want you to tell us a bit more about what's the mission here and what are you working on? Yeah, you know, I just was so inspired and this was part of the Stillness Project. When I left finance, I was just so moved by the power of meditation. I could see that most of the world's problems, you know, I just came back from Davos in Switzerland where the World Economic Forum where we screened the portal. And, you know, you're talking in a lot of meetings and brainstorming with some really significant leaders in the planet about making positive impact in the world. 
And the way I see it is that we have a lot of problems on the planet and majority most of those problems, as Mikey Siegel says in our film, are created by the human mind. And so if we're trying to solve those problems on the planet with a state of mind that was creating the problems, as Einstein says, it's kind of like the definition of insanity. So my angle was that if I want to create change on the planet, if I want people to have better relationships, better health, better work life, then meditation is going to be an important part of them changing the program and the software in their mind and getting into a deeper place of consciousness. And so my motivation was to bring meditation to the masses and inspire a billion people to meditate daily. And so part of that vision statement, mission statement, was to use different devices to bring that awareness out to the world. And it was kind of hot on the heels of the secret. I saw that the secret had this capacity to bring a very esoteric subject matter that very few people had accessed and blast it into the mainstream households of the world. That really gave us a strong impetus and we we're very inspired by that to do the same with meditation because I just couldn't understand. And of course, this was seven years ago before Headspace and Calm and all the other apps had suddenly hit the marketplace. But meditation was still very much unheard of. And so we really wanted to mainstream meditation. And we thought making a feature documentary that showcased the power of meditation through six personal stories. So we've got six stories that we filmed all around the world in a Syrian refugee camp in Jordan, in Boston, one in San Fran, one Augusta, you know, these amazing stories that all had crisis and they all had transformation using meditation. We wanted to showcase that no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've been through, that everyone has the ability to alchemize, to transform, to go through a chrysalis moment and create a better version of their current self using tools like meditation. And there's a multitude of tools that we can do that with, like plant-based medicines and stuff and oracle cards and chakra clearing. But for me, I wanted to focus on one that I was passionate about and skilled in, that was meditation. So then we got a film and that's out in the world now and screening in cinemas around the world and about to go digital in about a few months' time. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing these ideas with us. For everybody listening, do check out the portal. It's going to be already out by the time you're listening to this. Look at Tom Cronin, all the projects he's working on, and bring more meditation to make the world a better place. Now, if you've been paying close attention, we've talked really about why you want to bring this into your life. A lot of us feel disconnected in the workplace, possibly disengaged. We might be dealing with some sense of anxiety, possibly depression, realizing that everything's happening so fast. And if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know that this is something we've beat the drum on that this idea of meditation mindfulness really is a panacea that can help you with a lot of these issues a lot of the problems that exist in the world today happen because a lot of people are doing a lot of things without being conscious because it's moving so fast We've went through Tom's story of transformation where he was going all out within a particular field, which is finance, which is maybe one of the last fields you would think meditation and mindfulness should be present at. Yet when he implemented this, the next 16 years brought even more results with peace, with fun, with growth, and you can do the same within your own industry. If you're looking to start meditation, look into Tom. He has many products that could be available to you. And of course, if you're a fan of Mind Valley, we also promote these as well. Or just go on YouTube and find any practice that resonates with you. We recommended here through Tom said, look for things around transcendental meditation or mantras. And with that, this could be a practice you bring into your life, seek support, seek community, seek a teacher. If you really want to deal with some issues so that when you go 
back into the workplace with this new practice, you're going to see that you'll have more peace, more fun, more joy, less anxiety, less stress, and still be a very productive member of society that's actually working towards making the world a better place, which is the ultimate goal of bringing together these meditation practices on superhumans at work. Tom, once again, thanks for being on the show and everybody listening, go out there and make the world a better place. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.